Hi guys, this is Andy McDonald from the Informed Performance Podcast. On this episode, I speak to Lauren Johnson, the mental conditioning coach for the New York Yankees baseball team. In this episode, we'll be discussing how Lauren supports the players at the Yankees with their psychological approach to enhancing performance, transitioning from rookie to pro level, and preparing athletes for retirement. If you haven't done it already, hit subscribe to this podcast on whatever player you're listening to us on, and it will support the show to continue. And you'll receive episodes as soon as they are released. Here is the episode with Lauren Johnson. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for coming on the show today and giving up some time. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good. Um, just to begin with, for the listeners, could you just explain exactly who you are, um, a little bit about your background and uh, where you are today? Yeah, so my name is Lauren Johnson. I am a mental conditioning coordinator for the New York Yankees, and I work throughout their minor league system, I'm just pretty much on the mental side of baseball. And I'm sure we can all agree that it's a pretty mental sport, um, including kind of anything in life. It kind of relates to all of that. And I've been with the Yankees for for about the fourth year now, going my fourth season. And what was your kind of um, education and what was your route to getting into the Yankees? Where How did you get to where you are today? Um, that's a great question. Um, my path isn't exactly a, a common one, I'd like, I, I guess you could say. Um, I started off with a degree, uh, going after a degree in kinesiology. So originally I wanted to become a physical therapist. And um, in some of my studies, we did um, an internship where I got to work with a lot of athletes in, the, in a physical therapy role. And I realized for me, uh, the medical side wasn't one I was um, super interested in and not one I was very good at, quite frankly. Um, but what I really liked was my interaction with my clients. So being able to speak to them through their about their injury, about the struggles that they were facing, and that was where I really connected the most. And so I actually added on a minor. So I ended up um, getting a degree in my undergrad in kinesiology with a minor in psychology. And in one of my uh, elective courses, actually, it was during when an injury myself, um, I received my fifth concussion my senior year of uh, college, and I was told that I could, it was no longer safe to play. And so although I still remained on the team, I traveled and did all that, I did have a little bit more time to take on another class. So I found sports, sports psych, um, independent class. I was the only person in the class um, and fell absolutely in love with it. And it was through that class that I met my master's professor and the director of my uh, master's program, Dr. Sarah Castillo, and ended up pursuing a master's degree in performance psychology, which is kind of a broad term for sports psychology. What we do in that is we don't just attack sports, we attack all sorts of things. So whether it could be like high-risk occupation, such as the police academy or um, firefighters or military, but we're also working with people in like the performing arts realm, like actors, actresses, singers, dancers, all of that kind of stuff. So I guess you've got to understand kind of psychology as a whole before you can narrow in on, you know, a specific uh, sporting population. Yeah, because I think that every sport population is different. Every domain requires, has different demands, has different stressors. And now while we could all say that they are, we could all put them under a general umbrella that we can all, I guess, and relate to, we, they also require a different way of, of applying the same principles. And so I think that when you can understand it from different domains, it actually helps when you're working with different sports. 
And what does your kind of day-to-day role look like at the moment with the Yankees? I know the season changes wildly and that probably affects what you're doing, but what does your kind of role look like? Yeah, it's uh, different every day. <laughs> and I think anybody in uh, my position would uh, agree with that. Uh, I, it depends also on the time of year. So right now we're in the off season. And so what my role looks like in the off season is I do support our players still. And I still work with them in the off season, but I also department and um, in a couple of ways and help with the draft process. And then I'm also, a lot of it too is spent um, researching and developing uh, programs for next year. So going into spring training and then um, into season. And those, obviously, we have to be flexible because, you know, our programs, it's hard to set things in stone because it's really, we are, we are working with what the athletes need, with, with our staff needs. Um, and in, in supporting that, it's not always cut and dry, black and white. And so it's, uh, it's kind of developing some ideas and getting stuff kind of ready. And then we'll be able to be flexible around those things. And then during season, it's a little bit different. Um, it depends on where I am. And uh, basically, whenever I'm with a team, um, it can look from anywhere from, you know, group sessions, individual one-on-ones, meeting with our staff, a lot of observing, going out to the field, um, observing their practice, observing their lifts, observing games, and then from there, connecting with players um, kind of on and off the field. Yeah. And a little bit open-endedly, but what are the kind of ways in which that you support the athletes? How does that, how does that package look for the athletes? Yeah, um, definitely. We are the, at the Yankees. We believe that you don't have to be sick to get better, and we also certainly believe that it's more important to view the athlete as a whole, not just an athlete. And so we play a lot of different supportive roles. Um, a lot of it, of course, involves um, the mental side of sport, but inevitably we also cover the mental side of life. And depending on where they're at in their transition. I mean, if you think about it, we're taking some guys out of high school that haven't gone through that college experience. And that's a big chunk of development. And so they're experiencing that with us. And so I think it's super important to kind of meet the athlete where they are. And that includes recognizing where they are in their lives, what periods, what stage of life are is required or are, are they in? What is required in terms of their development and maybe their aptitude and their understanding of the sport and where they're at. Um, and so, I mean, I guess that our support looks different. It could be anywhere from mental, personal, maybe we also can be bridges to our coaching staff and the medical staff as well. Um, because sometimes players don't feel, sometimes players will come to us about an injury and they're afraid to go tell the staff because they're afraid to be taken out of a game or they're afraid to be put on the sidelines. And so we also act as a bridge to that and kind of walk them through the benefit of why you want to talk to them. And they, we have the most incredible medical staff. So this is typically not a problem. It's very rare, but if it is, it's more because they don't want to be taken out of the game. And so going back to like kind of being that bridge between whether it's medical staff, coaching staff, um, or otherwise, we are also that kind of support as well. And I'm sure this really varies player to player. And and I guess, like you just said, depending on what um, stage of life they're at as well. Um, are there kind of typical struggles or conditions that you you do help with the athletes that perhaps aren't um, aren't coping as well mentally? Yeah, um, like you said, it totally depends on the athlete. But I think, especially with some of our high school guys coming in from the draft, or even players coming up from the Dominican Republic, 
um, a lot of it is transitioning into kind of this new lifestyle and the lifestyle of professional baseball is different. Um, it's hard, it's demanding, it's a struggle and there's a lot of failure. So inevitably with some of our younger guys, we talk about failure a lot. We talk about confidence a lot. Um, we talk about lack of confidence a lot. Um, being able to act through or taking actions and, and working through actions and not so much focusing on our feelings. Um, I would say the the higher we get in our levels, we're talking a little bit more specific. So while I might be building a routine with a younger player, when I go up to the to the higher levels, they've got their routines down. Now we're fine tuning. And really, I mean, if you think of baseball, it's it's a game of inches. I mean, it's it's the the differences between people that are good and great are so minute. The talent becomes very, very, I mean, it becomes incredible across the board. And so the things that become separators are really tiny details. And so that's where we get to have a little bit of fun and get creative and really uh, fine tune either their routines or their mindset or self-talk or, you know, you name, you can name the, t- the topic. And that, those are the things that we get to work a little bit more specifically on with our players as they go up. Whereas with our younger players, we're working a lot on either educating or establishing a really strong foundation. You obviously with baseball, you get um, so many games in a month, let alone a season. The players are playing, you know, back to back days, traveling. It's really, in, it's quite an intense schedule. Do you see a kind of correlation where the, the higher performing players have more ingrained rituals or are they more consistent and disciplined with their kind of preparation? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's big time. And a lot of times when we get players in, not all the time, but especially with some of our younger players, they've made it based on talent. They haven't had to create a routine. They haven't had to take into consideration these details. And when you were the best on your team, Suddenly you get put in a pool of all the best on their team. Now you start to think, oh crap, how am I going to separate myself? And this is where that comes into play. And what I notice a lot of times, especially with some of our younger levels, when they get sent up, maybe for a day to maybe just to, you know, throw an inning and then they're going to come back down or they need to fill in a position because somebody got injured and they come back down. This is the feedback I always get from them is they say, I can't believe how much preparation and detail these players have. And so it's often a really good bridge or kind of like preview into what's required at the next level, because every guy is preparing. Every guy is, is taking into consideration all these tiny details that breed success. And that also comes with a really, really high level of self-awareness that can only be bred by doing these preparations, by reflecting and by putting yourself in situations that may be difficult or trying new things that do breed success or breed the opposite. And then taking that into consideration and then applying it again. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that the, some of the best players that we see not only are highly prepared, but highly disciplined. And obviously what works for one person doesn't always work for another. If you've got, say, that that younger athlete with maybe less self-awareness, um, lots of talent, when they get to the point where maybe they recognize they need to start preparing like the more senior um, or high-performing players, from your point of view, how do you kind of facilitate them to explore their options and identify what could work for them? How do you kind of let them find that menu of um, preparation uh, rituals? 
Yeah. Well, part of it is educating. So we do a lot of educating at the younger levels just to, you know, teach them why these things are important, where we could see them fit into their game. But I think the best ways to to kind of, I guess, influence a, a younger athlete to really develop some of these things are finding their pain points. So finding the points where they're struggling to finding the points where maybe they could use some improvement. And the, the worst thing that we could do in our field is force anybody to do anything. And so a lot of times, you know, I'm not sitting there like saying, you need to do this. It's, this is your career, whether or not you go develop a routine, whether or not you take into consideration these details, I'm not going to sleep any different. It doesn't make a difference in my life personally. I want you to do these things because these are going to improve you. And at the end of the day, this is your career. If you succeed, it's not because I told you to do routine. It's because you went and you put these things into practice. That's because of you that you succeeded, not because of anybody else. And I guess you're shifting the ownership to them. Like when they when they want that support, it's because they need it, they want it, they've, they've gone and found it from you. Yeah, correct. When athletes are doing um really well from a health from like a mental health standpoint they're performing they're consistent uh, do you tend to leave those athletes alone or do you still check in with them oh still check in with them for sure and i mean our check-ins aren't always you know they're they're not just hey how's your mindset it's hey how's your family hey i remember you said you were going on a date you're taking your girlfriend to this restaurant how was it it's checking in on more than just the athlete, but then also continuing to challenge them even through their successes. Because one of the things that can happen with a failure or success is to take your foot off the gas. Either we're disappointed because we failed or we're pretty content because we succeeded. And so I think it's super important to make sure that no matter what, we remain hungry. And just like anything else, we have to keep feeding that keep feeding that motivation. You know, what are you consuming? What are you, what are you doing to get better? What are you reflecting on? Like, what are all those things kind of embody what we're pursuing? And so I want to make sure that no matter if they're doing incredibly well, that we're challenging them to get better. Even so, or we're challenging them to maintain and, or do simple better. And then if they're not, and they're failing, we're, we're challenging them to like, okay, let's, let's take a good look at this. What is it that you need to get better at? And like, let's get back to work. So yeah, absolutely. You know, in our, in our realm, we're not only working with guys that are, you know, not doing well, but we're working with guys that are having their best season yet. And to me, I think that's really important. As a kind of industry, a wider sports medicine industry, we're, we're always looking at how you monitor players um, and collect data and um, uh, gain insight into how the athletes are presenting. Um, classically, we're doing that with kind of gym metrics and sleep and um, lots of physical wellness uh, measures. Um, I'm aware you might have to be sensitive to the Yankees, but amongst your kind of experience within sport, um, is there kind of daily things that you like to try and collect from players to get an indication of where they are psychologically? I think probably the biggest way we do that is by observation, uh, by observation and checking in with them. I think it needs to be consistent. Um, I think it's hard to, I, I guess, collect data on mindset for us. Um, and now while it's important, I think, I think our field in terms of baseball is moving in a direction of a lot of data and it's super important to learn those things. I think it tells you a lot about how the player is doing, how they're performing, but not to be the person that only looks at that. 
And I say this to parents as well is not to be the box score parent where, you know, you're looking just at the data and you're not talking to the athlete because the athlete could be working on something that the play, the coach doesn't care if the, if the stats are bad or the data is bad. They want them to get this move down and that move is not reflected in the data. And so while the data is important and while we do, you know, take some of that into consideration when we're you know, monitoring players, especially from far away, it's equally important to know what are they working on? What is their plan? So that we can be looking at that data with a strategic eye and um, having that filter to be able to then ask the correct follow-up questions and based on what their needs are and what they're working on. No, thank you. I was, I was, I was really curious as to whether there was kind of, you know, perhaps oversimplified systems that um, people in sport were trying to use for that or whether, like you said, it's it's more about relationships and communication. And I I know this may be a popular unpopular opinion, but I think that if we only focus on data, like we're dealing with humans. And so I think data is awesome. I've learned so much, like more than I ever thought I would know about data, data gathering and and it's incredible. But we're gathering data on human beings. And so we're inevitably going to miss things that human beings bring to the table. And so if we only focus on that, you're going to miss out on a lot of what the athlete has to say, what they have to bring to the table, and inevitably a lot of where a lot of the issues lie. So to me, I think that it's an incredible tool, but for us, like it's super important to look at both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I'm kind of curious when, as a PT, I've uh, you know I've dealt with lots of uh, injured athletes. Um, I've never personally had um, a sports psychologist at hand or anyone to deal with the kind of mental aspects of an injury um, other than just me talking to the athlete. How do you kind of get involved in athletes that maybe are preparing for surgery or out of action rehabbing an injury? How do you kind of work with them in those situations? Yeah, um, it's. I think everyone's a little bit different, but I think support is so necessary in these moments because what things have to, the things that change drastically are number one, there's like, there's some, there's some coping issues. Like there's immediately you have to cope with the grief of either the feeling of like, some people have a relief actually based on maybe they're feeling a lot of pain. They don't know what it is. And now they finally figured out what it is. So they're just relieved to actually have an answer to be able to move forward. But then you also have to take into consideration the people that aren't expecting these injuries and that maybe they haven't been in pain and it's an immediate thing. And maybe they're having the greatest season of their life and suddenly it gets ended because of uh, an injury. And so one of the things is the sense of loss is dealing, being a support to be able to have somebody to talk to about the, the sense of loss, the grief, the frustration, all of those things, kind of that closed door, you know, being able to chat about it. So one, an outlet is super important. I always tell our athletes to, you know, we're not all, not all people like to talk about their feelings. Not all people feel comfortable sharing their frustrations. And so the other thing I always say is if you can't talk to somebody or you don't have someone you can trust that you talk to, you know, write it out, get it out on paper, because research shows that when we actually express it, even if, whether it's on paper or through talking to somebody that we get the same release of energy and the same kind of, um, you know, a lightness afterwards, that light feeling when we can express something. So that's one. Um, a couple other things are shifting our goals and our expectations because when we're playing, our goals look a lot different than when we're recovering. 
And so being able to shift our goals to what are we going to focus on now and how are we going to define success in this realm? Because success totally drastically changes. Success could be, you know, lifting rice out of a bowl. You know, success could be getting your leg to a certain degree. It could be, it's, so it's very different. So I think uh, developing realistic expectations and also developing new goals and what that process is going to look like. And um, a couple other things that we can do that I absolutely love using is um, imagery and observation. So observing somebody else that has either is further in, further along in recovery or is so maybe they just got back on the mound or they just like got released to swing. Um, that's also a good thing to develop some confidence and like, okay, they're there. I, it's not, I can do that too. It kind of gives them a sense of something to look forward to, but then also watching people that are currently in their position to keep the mind fresh in terms of what it looks like, what the competition level looks like, because it's really funny when you talk to players immediately when they get injured and then maybe six or seven months down the road, they're like, I don't even remember what it feels like to be on the mound. I don't even remember, you know, what it looks like to be, I mean, not necessarily like they don't have no any clue, but when you're in there, you're watching competition live. It does kind of create those, uh, it develops those neurons even a little bit more. And then using that to then develop imagery practice and put them back on them, put themselves back on the mound. Because the great thing about imagery is your brain doesn't know the difference between, between watching something happen and actually doing it. Our brain doesn't know. So the same muscle fibers are firing, the same neuron connectors are being connected. And so if we can develop an imagery to a level, to a degree to where they can feel like they're back on the mound again. Now, when you're able to watch yourself do something that develops confidence, and it also keeps your brain fresh in terms of, uh, you know, remembering what that felt like having confidence that you can go out there and, um, and feeling like you're, you're still a part of it to some extent. So imagery is a big one for us as well. I mean, I, I absolutely love it, but then too, then it becomes the transition back into the game because now there's consequence back involved where before the consequences already happened. And now we have to consider, okay, now enter consequence again, the fear of getting hurt, the fear of not being as good as you used to be the fear of being left behind. All of those things are things that then we have to kind of attack when they're transitioning back in so that when they go back in, they're feeling, they're feeling confident, or even if they're not feeling confident, they know what to do when they're lacking it. So those are a couple things that like, I like to really stress when we're working with injured athletes. With what you were saying about imagery and the, the same neurons in the brain, not knowing necessarily the difference, do you see um, some value in virtual reality or is that still uh, too much in its infancy for us to make benefit of at the moment? Um, there, I definitely think that we're still in the process of infancy. I think that we're getting there for sure. Um, but one of the ways we kind of use, I wouldn't say virtual reality, but one of the ways like I like to use um, video, I like to use video in conjunction with the imagery because a lot of times guys might struggle to imagine or see themselves. And so sometimes I'll have them watch the video and then do a couple reps of imagery. And over time, it starts to kind of train the brain on what to look for. And we might focus on a different level of image. So there's different kinds of imagery also. So in, in terms of virtual reality, it's, it's, you know, we're working a lot with like what we see, but imagery isn't always just what we see. It's what we feel. It's what we hear. And so if there's some people that struggle with 
being able to visualize themselves, I focus a lot on the feel or I focus a lot on he- the, the he- like being able to hear. And so it's, it can be super beneficial for those players that really struggle to see the vision of it. Um, I think it is in its infancy, but I do, I'm really looking forward to watching it develop. Do you kind of personally have to really understand, I guess, like the kind of NLP or the the learning styles of each athlete to be able to identify, you know, what's going to be the best intervention for them? You know, because if they're not a visual person, using a visual tool might be redundant. Do you have to kind of tap into how does this person learn? How do they communicate to be able to then, you know, yeah. make sense of it for them? Absolutely. I think it's super important because again, like you said earlier, not everything works for everybody. And I always tell my athletes, I need you to tell me like, Hey, Lauren, that really sucked. (laughs) Or like, this really didn't work. I want the full honest truth because again, it's not about me. It's about our athletes and it's about making sure that they get what they want. And so sometimes I'll give them something and they come back. They're like, Hey, that didn't work very well for me. And we'll discuss what that is. So I think it's a little bit of trial and error for some players. And then it's a, and then it's also continuing to develop that relationship with, with them. And as you work with players a lot, you start to learn, okay, this is what they like. This is what they don't like. This is what works well for them. And this is what's not going to work. And so I think it's also a process of, um, of learning the player and learning the person. Yeah. Thank you. And athletes dealing with retirement is starting to be- is starting to become a bigger conversation um, at long last. Um, do you do anything to help athletes prepare for that retirement or um, transition into whatever is next for them? Yeah, absolutely. I've had a couple. I've had a couple instances where we've had players that are, you know, their their minds on retirement. You know, they're thinking about it. They're maybe they're unhappy. Maybe they've put in a ton of effort and they're still not seeing the results that they want. Maybe they are seeing all their friends, you know, move on with their lives, or maybe they're ready for that transition to move on with their lives and start something else. Um, because let's face it, I mean, this, this job is not for everybody. It's hard. It's really freaking hard. And um, inevitably, there are guys that uh, choose to retire. And whether it's based on injury or not, um, one of the things that we hope to offer is uh, just a place to be able to gain clarity. So leading up to it, I ask a lot of questions, you know, there's no judgment at all. I, I I think that's the most important thing is that this is one of the hardest decisions for these guys to make because coming into baseball, it's their dream. And suddenly when you, when you're, whenever you're going after a dream and you start to realize, wait, wait, maybe this is not what I want. That's a tough reality to come to terms with because you have to become a beginner again in something else. And so taking that into consideration, um, I like to ask a ton of questions like, okay, let's, let's see what, what would that look like? What would that look like if you transitioned out? What would be the benefit of it? You know, what, what do you think would be tough about it? And so my hopes in asking a lot of questions is that we kind of gain clarity on, on their decision, but ultimately their decision has to be theirs. What I don't do is I don't tell them what they need to do because that's not my, (laughs) it's not my life. It's theirs. So maybe just helping them kind of develop a little bit more clear structure to that um, is one thing. And then the second thing is the transition is the identity. I think this is the tough one. I, I dealt with it myself. When I was told I couldn't play anymore my senior year, I didn't know who the hell I was. <laughs> I mean, I went from, I was definitely the kind of athlete that I, I would do two a days on my own. I loved, I loved the pursuit and I really, I wasn't that talented, but I just loved like getting better. I loved 
pushing myself and seeing the results. And so what I realized though, is that I only pursued Lauren as a soccer player. I didn't pursue Lauren as anything else. And so I know when I, when I was told I couldn't play and it was a shock to me, um, that was a hard thing to come to terms with and learning who I was outside of it. And so some of the things that I dive into with players that, you know, and want the help in transitioning out is, you know, who, who are you? Who are you outside of baseball? And what about baseball and like who you are as a baseball player is something you want to take with you because Lauren, the soccer player still lives. (laughs) She's still in there somewhere. And a lot of the things that I learned and developed while playing soccer and being on a team I use every single day and I'm really proud of that. And so I, I help part of it is helping develop, you know, who you are and the, the best way to develop a new identity is acting within that identity. So what that means is like, there's a lot of people that say, you know, Oh, I'm not a morning person. Well, if you're not a morning person, that's your identity and the actions support that identity are you don't wake up early <laughs> or when you wake up early, you're probably not the most fun to be around. Where if you're, if your identity that you want to change to is, you know, somebody that has a full-time job, somebody that, you know, lives a little bit slower lifestyle, like what do those things look like? And trying to draw out, you know, who is the type of person you want to be outside of this? And typically it's not a slower lifestyle with our guys. It's like, I want to open my own business. I want to be the best businessman in the world. And that's part of the baseball side, wanting to be the best that transitions very, very well into the business world. So, and and so on with all other things in life. And so um, a lot of it is not only like you said, or like you had talked about kind of figuring out who, who is it that you want to be because that transition so hard, but also preparing them for what is that going to look like? Is that a very common thing that you're seeing that because these guys are inherently competitive, a lot of them do gravitate towards business? Or do you see some guys that kind of completely go against that grain and do something away from competition entirely? Um, I've seen both. Uh, most though tend to fall into the competitive realm, whether it's, I don't know, be do, working in sales, opening your own company. Um, but then I also see guys that want to be an inspiration and help people in, in several different ways that maybe they struggled even as an athlete. So they want to stay in athlete athletics to some capacity and by using their experiences kind of help people around them become better. Yeah. Um, um, from your perspective, being around uh, lots of coaches, whether that's in the gym, whether that's baseball coaches and other sports coaches, uh, sports scientists, therapists, you know, the whole community. Um, are there any kind of common skills or uh, strategies that you think the other professions that you work around um, maybe need to sharpen up on or would really benefit from turning to? You know, the best and, and I'm going to tell you the story because my, my mentor, um, Justin Sua. He's absolutely incredible. He's the the mental performance coach for the Tampa Bay Rays. And he told me the story. And I think that it's kind of, it'll answer this question in terms of what I think makes kind of the best teacher or coach and or staff member to support these players. And I remember he said that he was, he was going after a teaching job. And what had happened was they they said, okay, we're going to have you teach this class. And his kind of supervisor was going to watch and then grade him. And based on that, he would get the job or not. And so he goes, you know, he was like, I'm up there. And he goes, you know, when you know, you're just like killing it, like you're crushing your session. He goes, that, that was me. Like, I'm like halfway through this, uh, this session with this class and I'm just killing it. And he goes, and at the end, um, you know, I sit down with my supervisor and he says, how did you think it went? And he said, 
uh, okay. But he goes in my mind. I'm like, killed it. And the supervisor goes, yeah, I thought it was just okay too. And he kind of was shocked. And he goes on to say, you know, there are two types of teachers. There's the mirror and the magnifying glass. The mirror teacher focuses on what you want to say, what you want them to hear. And the magnifying glass focuses on the students and what they need to hear. And he said, today you were a mirror. And it kind of stunned him. And so when he told me this story, it really made me think because we are not the heroes, the athlete, the client, the audience, whoever you're speaking to, they are. And so I think to become the best teacher, the best coach, the best mental coach, we have to focus on the needs of the client the needs of our players, the needs of our audience. And I think when we do that, we become the best coaching coaches, staff, mental coach that we could possibly be is making them the hero and we just be kind of become the guide that's brilliant and for you know on a similar thread to these kind of same people that work around athletes is there any tools that you tend to advise people to look at maybe books or programs or uh, for people to upskill on how you support athletes uh yeah there's um I'm going to forget the name of it, of course. Um, it's a couple of books by Stephen Covey. I think one of them is called Supporting the Athlete. Um, and then in other words than that, I like to read uh, Ryan Holiday and um, James Clear, two of my favorite authors. And so I would definitely recommend Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, I, the reason why is because I think that the better we become, the better we become for our athletes. And so just telling them what to do is one thing, but also doing what you want them to do is another. And so I think atomic habits is one thing we can all improve and and better ourselves through our habits. And that also helps then us in our discussions with players. So I like that one. And then uh, another book, The Obstacles Away by Ryan Holiday. Great book. And I think that it's short stories and examples that can really help translate, especially with injury, dealing with the obstacle of injury and the uphill battle that it's going to take to get you to where you go, to where you want to go. I think that's also a great book that I'd recommend. I think he has a podcast actually as well where he shares one or two minute stories based on the Stoics. I think is yeah, that Ryan Holiday. He does. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'd recommend it all. <laughs> well, Lauren, thanks so much for um, your pearls of wisdom and giving up your time. Um, I learned a lot, and I think everybody will do as well from your from your insights. Um, we're on the clock there, but where can people follow you and track your activity? Um, I am on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, my maiden name is Abarka. So if you see that at all, that's why, but my, my current name, I just got married is Lauren Johnson. So you can follow me on Instagram at at Lauren Nicole Johnson on Twitter at underscore Lauren Johnson underscore. And then on LinkedIn, Lauren Johnson. And then in parentheses, it says Abarka. Brilliant. And where are you most active or are you good at getting your stuff out on all the platforms? I'm probably most active on Twitter and Instagram, but I do like to post stuff um, a couple times a week on LinkedIn. Cool. Good job. Well, thanks so much for your time. And um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Of course. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. I'd like to thank Lauren for coming on the show and enlightening us on how to support athletes' psychological well-being or enhancing their mental preparation. As usual, the episode show notes can be found on our website, informperformance.com. Don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at InformPod or on Instagram at InformPerformance. 
Next week's episode will be a conversation between myself and the incredibly sharp Daniel Martinez, the head strength and conditioning coach and coordinator of the Sports Performance Centre at Trinity University. Keep an eye out on our social media for that one or simply subscribe to the show to ensure you don't miss it. Thanks for listening to today's episode and you've been listening to the Informed Performance Podcast. 